you know you have a powerful story? I'm Mary DeMuth, and in this podcast, I share stories of everyday people who remind you that you're not alone as you untangle your own story. Because of the outrageous generosity of God, I believe you can experience a joyful restory moment right now. Remember, the old is gone, the new awaits. The Restory Show starts now. Season 4, Episode 11. Today's podcast is brought to you by BookLaunchMentor.com. If you've ever dreamed of writing and actually publishing your story, you're going to find all the mentoring you need at BookLaunchMentor.com. And uh, also uh, be apprised that I'll be having a mentoring intensive, and those have been actually quite life-changing, not only for me, but for the people who have attended them. We've been seeing out of every mentoring intensive, nearly every person that's gone through it has left there and then published their book. So to me, that's really exciting. Next one's in February in Rockwell, Texas. If you would like to host one somewhere else in the country or the world, and you have like nine or 10 or 11 writer friends to join you, uh, then go ahead and email me at mary at marydemuth.com and I will help you make that happen. Also, I'd appreciate it if you could get the word out about the Restory Show. Just um, write two to three sentences. That's all. No one's going to correct your grammar, whatever. I don't care. Just tell us how the show has affected you in two or three sentences or less with a couple stars here and there. Uh, that just helps spread the word about this podcast. And that's I'm really excited about seeing the kingdom of God expand because of the reach of this podcast. If you want to be on the Restory Show, again, you can just run to marydemuth.com walk, don't run, or run, don't walk. And uh, on the right-hand side, you will see an icon that looks like a microphone and just click that and you can share your four minute, up to four minutes of your amazing story. So today I am tickled to welcome my friend Troy Katie to the Restory Show. He is a force of nature. He is an amazing man of God. He thinks deeply and he's one of my most favorite people on this earth. Um, he is going to be talking today about um, vocation, and he has some really amazing impact um, statements about that. So be be uh, anticipatory and excited, and let's welcome Troy. Hey, everyone. It's Mary DeMuth with The Restory Show, and I'm so excited to have my friend Troy Katie with us today. Troy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So Troy, give us a little nutshell of how you grew up and who you are and what you're doing today. All right. Well, I think what I'll do, if you don't mind, is I'll just go ahead and start with how I grew up and what got me to a certain pivot point in my life. And then um, the the main story that I want to focus on is really has a lot to do with what I'm doing now. Perfect. Um, so I'll kind of tell my story in a couple of chunks here. Chunk it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> chunk it up. Love it. Um so, yeah, I had an interesting childhood. I uh, had an interesting experience when I was two years old that's really left a lifelong impression on me. Uh, when I was two years old, my uh, father accidentally uh, backed over me with his truck. Um, I was playing outside and I got behind the truck uh, when, you know, he was doing something, didn't see me there. I was in the blind spot of his mirror and uh, he backed over me and and I almost died. That I say that that kind of left an impression on me <laughs> <laughs> because um, I, I, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm here for a reason. And part of that reason is there were a ton of people who prayed for me. Um, at that point, 
I think my mom and my dad were, you know, they were good Lutherans <laughs> and, uh, you know, but not the, our, our faith wasn't necessarily a vibrant part of our family life. And, uh, but my mom grew up in a home that, uh, her, her mom was a vibrant, uh, believer and, um, and so my grandma on my mom's side got her whole church praying for me. And um, I believe it's because of those prayers uh, that I'm still alive today. And I believe that I'm alive just because, as is the case with everyone, God has something special in store uh, for everyone. Um, and I have a keen sense of that, that God has something you know, that he wants me to, to spread in the world, um, something good and beautiful and true um, and joyful. Do you, do you have any memory of that happening or being in the hospital or anything? That's a good question. I, I have pictures of it. Um, and when I was in elementary school, I remember having a couple of dreams about it. But of course, because it's a dream, you know, I'm not sure what's real in that or what what is that that you know my subconscious might be trying to sort out but that that's all really mm -hmm. yeah you're um, super young I, and i do have you know my my sister because i'm the youngest of four kids and my sister's five years older than me and my brother other brother is seven years older and i have another brother three years older than me so my oldest brother and my sister have have said to me little things that they remember from that day. Uh, my mom remembers how my dad, you know, was just screaming, like couldn't believe what he'd done. Um, and my sister remembers later that day, my dad just falling really dumbstruck would be the word that I would use <laughs> for it. Um, just sitting there kind of just not knowing what to say other than just, Oh, Oh my God, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, what have I done? Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And, uh, so it's something that, um, you know, definitely has left an impression on my life. And, and, um, like I say, I, I feel like I'm here for a reason, but, but I didn't really discover that until many years later. Um, I, in my growing up years, about, about two years after that, my mom and dad got divorced and my mom was granted custody. And because uh, she was a single mom of four kids and I was the youngest. And by the time of, you know, the divorce happened, my oldest brother was about 11 years old and my sister nine years old and stuff. And shortly after that, probably another couple years after that, it be became possible for my mom to be able to go out on her own and leave us kids at home, you know, to kind of watch after ourselves. But that that really got us into a lot of uh, mischief and a lot of <laughs> <laughs> stuff that really kids shouldn't be into. Um, so, you know, I'm talking drugs, alcohol, pornography, um, just all kinds of stuff. Um, I remember watching The Exorcist when I was about six years old. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> And that kind of thing. Um, I remember sitting next to my brother during, you know, one of his parties with his high school friends and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, my mom got remarried when I was, uh, you know, basically the summer before fourth grade. And uh, it was right before I turned uh, 10, I was nine years old at the time. 
And I remember at the wedding reception getting plastered. You know, I was nine years old, and of course, it doesn't take very much alcohol to to get a nine-year-old drunk. You know, especially me, I was a little pipsqueak at the time. Um, but you know, people would send me to go get their drinks, and on the way back, I'd always make sure and take a sip of it before I gave it to them. <laughs> kind of a thing but I drank so much I passed out and my mom had to stick her finger down my throat you know to make me throw up so that I so that I could uh you know start breathing again basically or well just just become conscious again really um so that's the kind of home I grew up in um we uh, after the divorce we really stopped going to church in those days if you were someone who was divorced you didn't really you know, you didn't really, you weren't welcome at, at you know, good, good churches very much because, uh, you know, a single mom showing up with four kids, people are going to ask questions. And it just so happens that the divorce, you know, came about because my mom had an affair. So you don't want people prying about that kind of thing when you're in respectable company. Uh, so we basically just stayed away from church. And uh, so really, I, I, I have no memory whatsoever because my mom and dad got divorced when I was four. So I have no memory really of going to church regularly other than the odd occasion when I go with my dad, you know, Christmas or Easter or sometimes, you know, we go just on a regular Sunday and and uh, that kind of thing. But other than that, no, we weren't churchgoers. Um, my mom got married to a guy who was a heavy drinker. Um, uh, you know, based on what I can piece together now, he was also in trouble with the law or at the very least owed some people some money who hmm. you don't want to owe money to. <laughs> yes. <what> I mean. <laughs> this sounds like a scary episode of like Breaking Bad or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, so shortly after they got married, uh, right around basically kind of around Christmas break of my fourth grade year, we moved from Minnesota to Texas. And when we were there, we lived in, you know, two different places in the span of about, you know, six months or so. Um, because uh, my stepfather was kind of a, a con man. Um, so he could get us into nice places, but um, because he would kind of spend his money on booze or, you know, clothes or, you know, whatever, he just kind of waste his money probably gambling, things like that. Um, you know, we'd, we'd end up not being able to pay the rent or sometimes we'd have our utilities shut off, you know, <laughs> kind of thing like that um, because it wouldn't pay the bills, um, that type of thing. So we'd get evicted, have to move someplace else. So we lived in Texas for six months, lived in two different places, moved to Colorado, lived there for a uh, year and a half, lived in three different places, um, went to different schools all the time over that roughly about a two, about a two year period. Um, and it was during that time that my mom's dad, who had not been a Christian his whole life, uh, he was, a, you know, if you can imagine just a big mechanic type guy, you know, <laughs> like grease under his fingernails all the time. And, stand outside in the Minnesota winter, you know, smoking a cigarette and nothing but his t-shirt, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was that type of a guy, just very, uh, very tough, you know, and had, had a, 
pretty foul temper. One time he yelled at my grandma so hard his false teeth fell out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, anyway, that was kind of funny. But he ended up coming to the Lord after years and years and years and years of my grandma praying for him. He ended up giving his life to God. And I remember they came out to visit us when we were living in Colorado. He was different, but I didn't know what the difference was in him. He was he was more gentle. He had this kind of joy in him and this peace about him that because I don't really remember growing up in church or anything like that, I, I didn't know, like, where did this come from? But then later I heard my mom talking with I think it must have been one of her siblings on the phone and heard her say something about how, you know, her dad had become a Christian. Um, and that was my first impression of what it meant to, to be a Christian. Um, and so I didn't quite understand what all that meant, but I just knew that somehow what happened to grandpa and becoming a Christian had, you know, something to do with each other. Well, shortly after that, he died. Um, and he and our family was in a situation again where basically we kind of needed to move again. So we literally, we got the call that he died and they lived in the Twin Cities uh, in Minnesota, my grandpa and, and grandma, where my mom had grown up. And uh, we got the call that he died and we decided, well, you know what, we're going to be going to the funeral. We may as well, and we, we need to move again. We may as well just go ahead and pack up the house and move. Um, so, you know, literally we got the call one day, uh, a couple days later, it must've been, uh, we had a U-Haul loaded up and we were on our way to Minnesota to live, uh, no place to live, no jobs lined up. Uh, we weren't enrolled in school. This was, this was basically shortly before the Christmas break of my sixth grade year of school. At this point, how many times have you moved? By sixth oh, grade. I don't. I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. Sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I I I I kind of stopped keeping track basically. So anyway, so we we uh, we moved there, and um, my uh, my mom's brother, so my uncle, uh, who was a pastor uh, of a church in Indiana at the time, and had I think at the time five boys of his own, uh, saw what kind of a way our family was in, uh, <laughs> in a bad way. And, uh, so he said, Hey, why don't you, uh, he said, he talked to his sister, my mom said, why don't you send, you know, Troy and, and, uh, Todd, who is my next brother, three-year-old, three years older brother, uh, with us to Indiana over the Christmas break. You can, you know, get your kids enrolled in the school, find a place to live, get yourself some work, and we'll bring them back uh, after, at the end of this time. And so my brother and I went that Christmas break uh, to my uncle in Indiana and his church. He lived in the parsonage next to the church. And it was really the first time in my life that I had experienced what a Christian home would be like. Um, <laughs> you know, I, even though before we moved away, I would see my dad every other weekend. Um, it was just kind of every other weekend and I didn't actually live there, you know? 
So this was the first time in my life where I was in a home for, you know, a couple weeks. I think it was um, just being with with a Christian family. And I was just like, wow, they have food. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they have, they have uh, heat, you know, that kind of thing. And they're nice to each other, you know, and they um, they uh, they didn't have pornography in their home or drugs or anything like that. Um and it just made such an impression on me. Well, there was a lock-in during that time. During the lock-in on the last night of it, you know, they had this thing where all the kids sat in a circle and they sang songs and there were some candles in the middle of the circle. And, you know, it was kind of this really nice atmosphere. And I didn't figure it out till later what had happened. But at one point they had, for some reason, asked kids to, like, come to the center of the circle. Um, and uh, so I saw other kids doing it. And uh, I was like, oh, this seems pretty cool. I'll go to the center of the circle, too. <laughs> and come to find out that basically my aunt and uncle thought that I had, be, you know, wanted to become a Christian by doing that. I had no idea really what I was doing. So but when my my aunt, when it was time to go back home, my aunt said to me, so what are you going to tell your mom when you get back home? <laughs> I figured out that basically she thought I had decided to become a Christian. So I was, I just kind of started playing along with it, basically. <laughs> you fake uh, became a Christian. <laughs> so, I, so I got home and basically because of my upbringing, I basically just wanted to be as, as liked as I possibly could with whoever I was with, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. And so my mom had given her life back to the Lord and my stepfather started playing along. Uh, so we went from basically not going to church at all my whole life and the kind of home that we were in to being at church Sunday morning, you know, twice, you know, Sunday school, Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service, Wednesday night, basically whenever the church had something going, we were there. So when I was at church or at home, now I started uh, acting like I was a Christian. But when I was at school, of course, when you're in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, it's not really cool in public <laughs> school to be a Christian. Um, right. So I kind of led this double life, basically, for about two and a half years, middle of sixth grade through through to eighth grade. And finally, you know, you can only keep that up for so long, that double life kind of thing. And finally, I and I realized that the pastor of the church that we were going to knew what I was doing, figured it out. And I got scared, like, oh, he knows my secret. And actually, it happened because I we were we were walking along, uh, you know, one day and I quoted some Bible verse, you know, because I, I was into memorizing the Bible, you know, in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. And stuff, and I quoted some verse to impress it, impress him, and he stopped me, and he goes, "You know, you can know the Bible backwards and forwards, but not really, you know, <laughs> not really be a Christian, you know, not really know God." I was like, "Oh crap, he knows my <laughs> secret." <You> know? <laughs> so finally, the summer between eighth and ninth grade, I gave my life to God for the for real. It just so transformed me. I mean, we're talking. I went from like listening to like Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath to listening to the Bill Gaither trio overnight. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but the thing is, I, I wanted it. Like I liked it. Um, it was comforting to me. And that kind of, uh, 
you know, so I started just like singing all kinds of hymns and, you know, and, and really studying the Bible and, you know, just really growing in my faith. And it changed me so much that all my friends, when I came back for ninth grade, um, they were like, what has happened to you? And so I started just sharing with them. Here's what happened. God got a hold of my life and he changed me. Um, and so instantly I start, I, I basically knew like right away, right after I became a Christian, I knew God's calling me into ministry. Um, cause here I am sharing my faith and started leading my peers and Bible studies, all kinds of things like that. So I knew God's calling me into that. Well, um, so basically that's sort of the beginning part of what got me to where I am today. Um, my, why don't I stop there? Do you have any questions on that at all? Or do you want me to just continue the well, I th story? I think it's fascinating that your, your pastor figured you out and you probably in your mind are like, Hey, I'm playing this game and I've, 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 you know, gamed the system. Basically I figured it out. And it's so true. Like there's a big difference between someone who is play acting Christianity versus someone who's been transformed by Jesus. And I mean, you can, you just said that there was an, a dynamic transformation so much so that your peers noticed. And I think that's something important to highlight is that Jesus actually does change your life. Yeah, it's, it, it is an authentic transformation. Um, in fact, later on when I, when I started kind of the main part of my ministerial vocation in, uh, in Europe overseas, I experienced quite a crisis of faith um, my at towards the end of my first year um, of that of that time of that chapter of my life and I mean so much so that I you know I was a pastor of a church and I had come to the point where I, I began to wonder is this really real you know is this God thing really real and I remember laying awake at night going, what if we're wrong? Like, what if this really didn't happen? What if Jesus, what if it's all just a myth? And what if Jesus really didn't rise from, what if there isn't even a God? Uh, what if I've been living a lie? And I mean, it was literally that, it was kind of like what John of the Cross would call a dark night of the soul. And I remember there was a friend that I had who wasn't a, wasn't really necessarily like a, a Christian or whatever. She didn't really go to church or anything like that, although I think she believed in God. Um, but I was in an improv group with her, uh, a dramatic improvisational group um, where we just kind of dorked around. We, I, we, we didn't really ever perform, but we, got, we loved getting together as a group and just experimenting with different, you know, theatrical techniques and stuff like that. It was kind of fun. Well, one day, give you an idea of the success of the group. She was the only one who showed up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so she said, uh, you know, oh, let's just go grab a coffee um, together. So we went across the street, grabbed a coffee. She said, so I know that you're a pastor. Uh, how did you how did you get into that? Did you did you grow up like was your dad a pastor? Did you grow up, <laughs> you know, in a family of ministers or whatever? And I was like. This was during my dark night of the soul time now, okay? So I said, oh, no, 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 no. Let me tell you my story. So I told her my story. And by the end of it, I was like, 
I, I had my answer to this dark night. I was like, you must be kidding me, Troy. <laughs> like, how can, how can you, of all people, doubt mm-hmm. <laughs> that there is a God and doubt that Jesus really is alive? Like, how could you doubt that? Um, and so I just knew. And, and so, you know, from then on, it was like, boom. You know, it was just like, it was like coming back from the dead. You know, I mean, it was like, uh, it was like, as Keith Green says, it was like I was born again, again, you know, kind of. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, what you're talking about. um, And I think it's appropriate for your podcast, the Restory podcast, that it's, it's a real story. You know, it's a true story. And it's not really even about our story. It's about God's big story. And we're just a part of it. You know, we're just a part of that grand narrative. And we find ourselves in it. And we we find ourselves, who we are, in the context of that big story. Um, so that that's what I love about what you're doing, by the way. Well, thank you. And, you know, as you had that dark night of the soul, that's how we got, we didn't, I don't know if we knew each other in that moment, but we were church planters at the same time you were a church planter. And so for the listeners, when we were in France, Troy was in Spain uh, with his wife and they were planting a church, Oasis Madrid, and we were planting Crossroads in Nice. And so that's how we know each other. That's how our lives have interconnected. Yeah, and um, and that's really kind of that's that's really a big part of another story, kind of the main story that I wanted to share. Although I feel like I've already shared the main story. <laughs> um, yeah, we had my wife and I had discovered um, an organization called it was called Christian Associates at the time. Right now, uh, currently, it's called Communitas International. Great bunch of folks, uh, just just crazy for Jesus is the way I'd put it. You know, just wild. Uh, you know, just so beautifully wild, and um, so just so gracious. And really, we found them. You know, because of a process that I I would call it. You know, all of us go through this vocational discernment. What I mean by that is, you know, the word vocation. Uh, comes from the Latin word voce, uh, meaning voice. Uh, we use it in music a lot, like sotto voce means uh, with a soft voice. Um, and and so the word vocation is really about your voice. It's about, you know, if you think about the different people in your life, think about someone that you love dearly. And right now, if you know, if we pause just a second, and just allow a, a moment of silence, you can hear that person's voice in your head, in your heart. And what's so wonderful about voice is that it's truly unique. You know, you could hear that person behind you and not see them, but you would know that it's them just by the sound of their voice. And everyone has a different voice. And so, um, I, I'm passionate about helping people find their voice. I'm passionate about it because I've been, you know, blessed with others helping me find my voice um, throughout my life. 
Um, so that's one piece of it. But the other piece of it is, you know, a vocation is work. We use the word synonymous with work. And that is a part of it. It has to do with what we do. It's what distinguishes partly, you know, Mother Teresa from Albert Einstein. They had a different voice. And we know their different voice because of their life work that they did. Um, and what I love about this idea of vocation is that it's typified in Genesis 1, where we see that God's voice, God's work are one. Like God, God's work is his voice. He speaks, let there be light, and there's light. And so vocation is about unifying your voice and your work. Um, and so throughout my life, um, I've always been on this quest of how can I bring who I am to what I do? Um, that being precedes doing, that doing flows from being. And so a big piece of my story is the arts, um, is theater. And so I'm grateful for this group, Christian Associates, because they really were responsible helping me to bring together my voice and my work, that artistic side of who I am with what I do. And part of it happened because they wanted someone to come and do theater in church planting or in starting new churches. And uh, so I went and we were first in Barcelona uh, for a few years. And uh, well, actually, we lived in Portugal for three months, Barcelona for three years, Amsterdam for seven months. And Madrid for eight years. And and what got it started was unifying the arts with faith, uh, the arts with ministry, uh, whether it was uh, in church, you know, on a Sunday morning or whether it was in the community. Um, but that kind of just got us going. You know, in Europe, you can't just start a church like you do in America. <laughs> you can't just say, oh, we're going to start our public services and people kind of just start coming. Uh, the folks in Europe are like, yeah, you know what? Why do I even need that? Um, that's just a, another thing for me to do on my precious weekend. And it seems kind of like a waste of time. Besides, uh, Christians didn't really stand up and do very much when the Holocaust came. Um, <laughs> in fact, Christianity might have been responsible for the Holocaust, um, at least a certain version of Christendom. Uh, basically. So a lot of Europeans, you would you would call Europe a post-Christendom continent. Um, and so you can't really, you have to really rethink what it means to be the people of God there. So really what our time in Europe did, uh, 12 years in Europe, was basically it trained me in thinking about the church in all different kinds of forms. Um, so when we started our churches in um, Madrid, first we started Mountain View, and out of Mountain View grew Oasis, and out of Oasis uh, was planted a, a, a church that's now called Decoupage, and then Oasis sent another team to Valencia for a project called, um, oh, uh, Poema, uh, something like that. I should know it because I support who are leading it. <laughs> Sorry, Amy and Jonathan, if you're listening to this. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I just remember the word poem uh, in it. So anyway, we, we experimented with different forms of church. And that was also a part of vocational discernment, matching who we are as the people of God 
with the work that God calls us to do in the world. I, I love the way Frederick Buckner describes vocation. He says, the place where God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And so vocation, a lot of it is about finding that place of deep gladness. Um, and that's really basically what we were doing all that time in Europe, was finding the place of deep gladness of the collective people of God and then discerning where that deep gladness could really feed the deep, deep hunger of uh, all kinds of people who are all around us every day um, and doing whatever it takes in whatever form to help bring that about. So as our time in Europe was coming to a close, I, I began to ask myself, I was, I was about 39 at the time, began to ask myself, knew we were moving back to the States, I began to think, okay, I'm entering my 40s here, typical midlife crisis, kind of uh, wondering, discernment, questioning, began to think, you know, what next? This was fun, 12 years, we, we did, did a lot more, actually, I think, than we had even dreamed we could have done, thanks be to God for that. But I began to think, what next? God, you know, if you were to use the, the fragments of our past, uh, how could you piece those together into something, you know, a tapestry, a mosaic that only God could put together? And at that time, someone gave me a book. It was actually a book written by a guy named Edwin Friedman, who's both a psychologist and a rabbi. And what he did was he applied family systems therapy from his psychological background to the family system of church and synagogue. And uh, a friend gave it to me because, you know, she, I'm a pastor and she's like, oh, I thought you'd be interested in this. Uh, it talks about how the church can be a healthy family system. And the big principle that Friedman talks about in that book is um, that a healthy family system is a non-anxious family system, a non-anxious environment. Uh, it's impossible for people to grow and thrive in the contexts that are riddled with chronic anxiety. And that matched a lot with my background in theater, where, you know, basically your goal is to get the acting ensemble to relax and concentrate. And if they can do that, you got a, you got a beautiful production on your hands, plain and simple. And it matched with some stuff that I had experienced in children's ministry, a new form of children's ministry, where the approach is called godly play. And the approach of it was rather than what most children's ministry does is it kind of revs the kids up you know, to, in hopes of, you know, keeping their attention. That's what we got to do. Well, this approach says, well, you know what? Kids want to learn about God already because God is working in them already. And so our job is really to help them slow down, to notice God, uh, which is really our job in any ministry, not just with kids. Pete's sake, you know, slow down. <laughs> The movements of God are quiet and slow, and, you know, if we just take time to notice, uh, we'll see God all over, all creation just bursting with the traces of God, if we just take time to slow down. So this form of ministry was was quieter. I call it the Mr. Rogers approach. It, it's, it, 
basically non-anxious, non-anxious environment, time, space, and relationships that are non-anxious. And I saw beautiful, beautiful things in that. So, uh, so Friedman's principle of non-anxiety really resonated with me personally because I'd experienced it. But, but still, the phrase non-anxiety was a little bit unsettling to me because I was like, well, it feels a little bit like asking a kid not to think of elephant, you know? <laughs> it's like the, the kid's going to be like, okay, don't think of elephant. Don't think of elephant. And they're going to be thinking of elephant because they're trying not to. Non-anxiety was a little bit unsatisfying for that reason. Well, then later in the book, Friedman says, well, the best way to cultivate non-anxiety on the positive side is by being playful. And a light bulb went off. And I was like, that's what I do. That's what we've been doing. We've basically just been playing and helping other people play. And it just rocked my world that everything was like was like play. And so when we moved back to the States, I began, here we go, playing with this idea of play, of just the power, the simple yet potent power of play. And it just wouldn't leave me alone. I kept seeing it everywhere. And it, it would keep me awake at night. And I started reading different things about uh, play and the big idea of it and why it's so important for us, not just as children, but also as adults. And I began, you know, sensing that this was where God was, where God's spirit was leading me next, was to say, okay, this is really who I am. Uh, This is what I do. I play and I help other people play. So living into that next season of vocation, I felt like God was asking me to just, you know, basically aim so that at the end of my life, people will just say one simple thing about me. He played and he helped other people play. If I could put that on my tombstone, I, I really think it would be enough. It would be enough. And it would have blessed countless people. So I began talking with people, talked with my wife about this, prayed about it, talked with other friends. And one of my friends, who's, uh, who, who I respect greatly, he, uh, he knows a lot about leadership. He's been in significant leadership positions for sizable organizations over the years. Just a great guy. And I talked with him and I said, is it just me or does something need to be started here that would just simply promote play and playfulness personally, relationally, and organizationally even. And he, he, he looked at me and he said, Troy, not only is this needed, there's a huge vacuum for this. <laughs> He's like, not only is this needed, but you are the one to start it. And that scared me. <laughs> I was like, it's just me, you know? But it wouldn't let me go. And so um, so about three years ago, I started this uh, ministry called Playful. It's with two L's on the end. And, uh, and basically, I, I misspell it on purpose because to, to convey the idea that play is a lot fuller uh, than what we often think of it as. Uh, it isn't about 
games or activities or what have you. It's more about a mindset, an approach to life that we bring to the various situations we face, to the relationships that we have, even to the way that we run our organizations. And so I'm just so, so grateful to God for leading me on this journey and granting, really, it's a privilege and an honor to just be about promoting play and playfulness in all different kinds of ways through play groups and play dates, through coaching, through team building, through writing. Uh, we're developing a theology of play that um, is a theology that is really for children as well. Um, and children can help create this theology uh, for adults as well. <laughs> so it's for everyone. It's not just for kids, but it's really an organization to help adults receive the kingdom of God like little children again. Um, and so that's my that's my story. I'm in the midst of it right now. And so uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts or questions about it. Well, I just received your newsletter today, and you have a free download, 200 Ways to Play, a free resource. And so um, if, if people go to playful.org, P-L-A-Y-F-U-L-L.org, they'll be able to, to download that, which would be really a great thing. I just appreciate that. My question for you is for those who are struggling today in their vocation, so their voice and their activity aren't matching up, what kind of advice would you give to someone who's in that kind of transition midlife, you know, or it doesn't have to be midlife, but just kind of going through a vocational crisis right now? Well, I'm a, I'm a big believer. If someone were to reach out to me and say, I'm going through this, uh, what should I do? I would I would say to them I'm not I wouldn't presume to advise you on what to do but I could ask you some questions that can help you just listen to God and what God wants you to do. Um so that would be coaching basically. <laughs> I would I would um I would encourage anyone who's wrestling with vocation to seek out a coach. It could be a spiritual director. It could be a life coach. Um, but And also, I think if you have a friend or maybe a partner, maybe a spouse that is good at listening and good at asking questions and helping you listen to God, uh, seek that person out. Um, that's the main thing. I, I would advise don't go to people who think they know what you should do um, because God is the one who knows <laughs> what you should do and God will reveal it to you. And I think the other piece of this goes along with it is that play with it. Play with, be willing to kind of hold with open hands what God might have in store for you next and 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 look for the deep gladness that's in you. Where is your deep gladness? Um, journal about that and be patient with it. Uh, so so look at that question slowly. Don't be in a hurry about it. Um, just try and look at it as slowly as you possibly can. Um, Brenda Uland, who's written a great book called If You Want to Write, 
she calls it moodling. The create she describes the creative process, which really vocational discernment is a creative process. She says what you need to do if you want to be creative is to moodle. Uh, feel like you can waste time. Often our world views vocational discernment or career change. If you go online and you look up, you know, how do I find out a new career? It's very performance driven. It's very task oriented. Uh, it's, it's not very slow, actually. <laughs> I think that's foolishness, though. I think, um, I think the best kind of vocational discernment is patient and slow and kind of moodling and creative. Uh, imagination is slow and quiet. Um, and so, you know, be patient with yourself in it. Be gentle with yourself in it. And look for people who can support you in it and ask good questions and be good listeners and help you listen. I love that. Now, as you look back over your past year, how has God restoried you in the past 365 days? Uh, I think in a word, it would be perseverance. <laughs> That's a fun uh, one. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, you know, it's kind of funny, because because of this journey I've been on, um, often people think, you know, things like pain, suffering, perseverance, you know, things like that. They think of those things as antithetical to play. But if you think about play when you were children, lots of deep play actually took, uh, uh, deep play is often training in perseverance. Let me put it that way. When you're a kid and you're in the midst of play, um, often you will experience that play as some, some, sometimes you'll have crisis points in the midst of your playtime. Um, and what kids do is they persevere in it and they push through it. Uh, and that's what I'm experiencing right now. You know, Playful's only three years old. And so basically in this past year, I've had to learn to kind of keep that playful spirit, that playful openness, but also to say, no, 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 this is not, this is not just something that's going to be fly by night. Um, I need to stick to it. I need to stay focused on it because uh, there are so many other things that could easily distract me from that vision. So persevering in it and continuing to write and continuing to create new ways for people and groups of people to, as, as I put it, play from the inside out. So that, that's basically where I'm at right now, is uh, really trying to think of how can we just spread this message more and more and more so that it isn't about the programs that Playful offers, but it's more about the big idea of play that kind of gets inside of you and messes you up good, you know. <laughs> That's basically where I'm at. I love that. And I think it, it's important. I like that you're connecting perseverance, not with trauma necessarily, but with play. And uh, you're right. I mean, we live in a pretty traumatic world. So it some of our ways of coping, if we can add playing to that list, I think we're going to have a lot more health and healing in the aftermath. So I, I just appreciate your story, Troy. I appreciate your honesty. I thank you for letting us you know hear all of the aspects of growing up and the faking and the f and the questioning later after you had become a Christian. And I think a lot of people can really relate to it. So thank you so much for sharing your story today. I really appreciate it, Mary. It has been a huge honor to be with you uh, for this time. And I thank you for the opportunity. 
Hey, thanks for listening to The Restory Show. Do you mind if I pray for you? Lord, I pray for those who are trying to figure out their vocation, their true vocation, and help us to understand how we perceive the world's greatest need and what our greatest pleasure is. Lord, thank you for Troy's word about playing and that that is actually um, an antic of the kingdom. And so, Lord, help us to let go of our seriousness. Help us let go of our dourness and our lack of laughter and instead see this world as children see it, to play easily, to let go of our devices enough to interact with humans on a human level. Reorient our hearts toward others. Reorient our hearts toward Uh, meaningful work and help us not to look for the splashy or the the things that gain accolades in the world but instead help us to just be obedient and and to your still small voice to the little steps that you have along the way thank you for Troy's story thank you that you rescued him when he was so young and nearly died and um, I pray for those in the audience today who have loved ones who are on the brink of death Um, Lord, that is such a difficult place to be, and I pray you just lift spirits and um, help us all to understand that, that this world is not all there is and help us to look for that eternal home. Lord, we love you. We need you. We bow before you. We worship you. We adore you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like more information about today's show, head on over to marydemuth.com forward slash four dash 11. And may you live a brand new resurrected playful story this week.